Hello. What's good? Uh, is it? No, tell him. Go ahead. It's on you. What? Please, I insist. It's Erica. Yes, it is. <laughs> I'm Kiss. I'm Daniel. And what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and beyond with a more equitable and creative. Yes, indeed. How you feeling, Damon? I am feeling alive. I am feeling like my blood runs warm mm-hmm. and it is under attack. I've never been more happy not to be a lizard. <laughs> it's a good day to be warm-blooded in the city of Chicago. Or it's not. No, it worked the opposite way? Or you, when you're cold-blooded, you're like, eat? no. No, you just drop down to whatever's outside. Okay. Shout out to my iguanas out there. <laughs> <laughs> we have no future iguana conversation, but what we do have for you is a wonderful episode with the scholar... David Stovall. I'm so excited. I'm giddy is the word. We bounced all over the place. This is like Damon's like rock star moment. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And one of my favorite conversations we've had up here. We've had a couple good ones. This week and next week are like killer. Yeah. We got these ideas off. Let's get it. Uh, but first, a couple community announcements. On Saturday the 2nd, Lester Ray has a listening social for his new project, Santuario. It's at Del Dia, a creative space in Pilsen, 1508 West 18th. Also on Saturday, Chicago and Mick Jenkins uh, is up at Talia Hall with the one and only Carrie Foe as his opener. They've been on tour together. She's one of my favorite rappers in the world. And then on the fourth at the hideout is the next edition of Monkey Wrench, which is a comedy show slash political education thing hosted by Arish Singh. And this is an election special with Maya Dukmasova, who is one of the writers for the Chicago Reader. And then lastly, on the 5th, at the Poetry Foundation is Poetry Off the Shelf with the brilliant Tarfia Faizula, who I've done some interviews with for my other show, Verses, and if you like poems, you'll like her. Shout out. That's all we got. Let's get into this conversation with the one, the only, Dave Stovall. Yes, sir. We haven't been fake deep in a while on the show. Yeah, we've been... Low-key, real deep. Real deep or real shallow. shallow. <laughs> this is the thing that my dad started coming up with. They call them nofarisms. It's where you say something that sounds like an aphorism but doesn't mean anything. So it's like a, a mile and a half goes far. <laughs> Over the last little while, I've come across folks who just come off with some, like, ill joints. Like, I was in New York and these uh, these two philosophers... And they were at this conference of worker mm-hmm. folks who were working who were writers. Mm. So this dude, his name is Stefano Harney. And he said this thing. He said, man, the plan emerges when we commit to be together. Yeah. I was just like, yeah, Damn. that's it. That's like, it. That's, that's it. <laughs> like, yeah. that's it. He was like, look, that's, yeah, yeah. Said, that's all like, that's all you need. And he was like, look, if you commit to be together, you will figure out where you want to go, what it is that you're trying to do. But mm-hmm. you first have to commit to be together. I was like, damn. And then yeah. the second one is actually from my pops. He was just like, like, hey, man, look, 98% of the stuff that you do is probably a waste of your time. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, great. So he was like, so you got to figure out what are those things that do not waste your time? Wow. <laughs> Savor that 2%. Man, yo, I was like. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's told her to just kind of the, yeah. the, the non deep joints. I was like, for the last little bit, just, I guess got hit with some gems. Yeah, I mean, that that's reminds, a great. Never mind. So I'm rewatching The Wire right now, and Lester Freeman had a quote. Uh, they 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 start to get, stop being corny around season three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he said, um, "Life is the shit that happens while you're waiting on a moment that never comes." Yo, 
Yo, <laughs> yo, man, look, season season four, yeah, 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 should yeah. go That's down you. as the best. That's you. That is the best. <laughs> joint. That's, that is your, the, that's your ball game. Oh right my there. god! Man. And I, I was watching. St- I mean, yeah. I was, it was this one yeah. scene. I like just started screaming. Yeah, that's you. Like watching it, like oh, like, that's the one in the in the schools, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god! Only a teacher could advise a group of writers yeah. to write like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, the only, that's the only, that's the only people who have seen it like mm-hmm. that. So what was it that rang so true about that? When they, when my man who was a cop. Pres who Belusky, gets, yeah. So Pres Belusky gets mm-hmm. a, starts teaching. Yeah. And he tells his students one, one day, he says, go down to the basement and get me any game that has dice. Because he was teaching probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right, right. And his student comes back up and was like, man, they wouldn't let me in the, they wouldn't let me in the storage room. He was like, don't worry about it. When you all go to lunch, I'll just go get it. He goes down to the storage room mm-hmm. and everything is brand new. Mm. I was like, damn. It's just like computers and the oh, whole thing. Man, I was like, man, you can only be a teacher to know that. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what like people would hoard shit. I mean, yeah. like they would, they would just, they would hoard it and then never use it. And then hock it off when it was out. I was just like, man, I was yeah. like, that, I mean, I remember watching that. I screamed out wow. loud. I was like, oh, shit. Only a teacher yeah. could, could know that. Right. There's something to be said for figuring out how to, like, capture those little things in, in media. <sighs> mm-hmm. Oh, Without know? being, like, too prescriptive. Yeah, exactly. like, that, that's not, like, a exactly. treatise on education. Exactly. That's showing a reality in a way that people who haven't been in that situation will recognize. Every teacher I know, they was just like, man, I never knew it could be put on television. Yeah. Like, I never knew it could come in yeah. cellular form. There's a great quote. Uh it was, I can't remember who the comic was, but they were talking to someone, who, a friend of theirs who grew up in D.C. Mm-hmm. And they were like, man, have you seen The Wire? He's like, why would I watch a show about a bunch of dudes I used to rob? <laughs> <laughs> no, yo. Like, I know them. Why would I watch a show about them? Because <laughs> I, I would ask folks in, in D.C. and Baltimore, I'd be like, man, did they get it right? They was like, yo. Yeah. Yeah. Them cats yeah, got it. Especially by season three. Yeah. Yeah. When they get into the Hamsterdam, which is like the experiment of abolition. Which was crazy right. to to be rewatching again. Have you uh, have you seen any other shows or movies that you feel like got some of those nuances around education correctly? I think there's one spot in there was one series that is, is going to sound now. This kind of goes into the aphorisms, non-realisms. Mm-hmm. This is going to sound hella funny to y'all. Tony Danza. Uh-huh. <laughs> that did. Right, right. Yeah. From Who's the Boss? Uh-huh. Yeah. They did a reality show where he went back to his old high school and taught. Mm. And it was this one joint. I was like, <laughs> oh shit. Like that, I was like, man, that's real. That's teaching like in real time. I was like, yeah. what the fuck? And you know. What a Tony the, Danza thing to man, do. Man, I mean, yeah. bizarro world. You're just kind of like, this is fucking Tony. Well, I know you've been a lifetime Tony Danza fan. So I'm, I'm saying, right, right. That I, I'm really going in. Him and Judith Light, who's the boss? You know, <laughs> Alyssa Milano, the whole John, right? Yeah. Oh, that's but yeah, wild. But I mean, it, 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 it got it. Like in terms of the type of stuff that you go and thinking about classrooms. Mm-hmm. And then he went to a mentor teacher and she just kind of broke it down to him. She was like, nope, don't do this. This is what you were doing. This is what you were doing. I was like, man, like this is for real. I don't know how the rest of the series went, mm-hmm. but that episode, I was like, they got, te- they captured teaching. Wow. In a, 
in a particular way. But I, it, I mean, the, you talk about the most bizarro. Yeah, Tony Danza yeah, and some random. It was like an A and E or Bravo reality <laughs> show. <laughs> <in America. laughs> and, and to that point, and we're just rolling. Yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah, yeah. What have been the like least accurate representations that you've seen in a movie or TV show? Man, all Scott's dang, tots. Man, <laughs> or just yeah. what? What are like the moves that you see people oh, do that don't ring true? Dangerous Minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes back to the 70s. There used to be this joint called Conrack, which was about this white dude who's teaching in South Carolina. Um, what was the other one that uh, Dangerous Minds? It was another rando joint. Uh, but all those all those kind of scripts around um, freedom writers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're yeah. circling Finding Forrester yet again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like yeah, yeah, the third exactly. episode of Finding exactly. Forrester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's cause it, because it's the trope. Right, yeah, it's yeah. exactly what you all the, put forward. Right, the, the it's the that white savior, the white savior, no pedagogical connection, right. no paying attention to what's actually happening in the lives of students. Just hear little black and brown baby right in this notebook, and you will save the planet. Yeah, right. and and an acceptance of the the structural inequities. Exactly, right. Like exactly. it goes with like this is it's bad. Right, we can, but it's supposed to be. It's going to be. Of course, it's bad. There's no like right. cognitive of like. We can break this. This should be disrupted. This it, is corrupt. Exactly. The, like there was a one scene that got it right. So in Boys in the Hood, there was this young blood. It was a one scene when Trey was younger, mm-hmm. and he got up. He he challenged the teacher. It was like, look, that's not what Africa. That's not what Africa. That's not the story of Africa. Right. Right. And he just kind of broke it down. He was like, look, this is where we come from. Here's what happened. There were wars here. From those wars, we were brought here. From here. We were brought here for these things, right? Mm-hmm. So he kind of, I think he kind of breaks down uh, the triangular sl- right. slave mm-hmm. trade. Right. So that thing around having those quick moments, but yeah, that kind of Hollywood trope. Uh, Viola Davis was in a joint that, and it was a true story of a group of parents who took over a school. Mm-hmm. And it was just all the way the, everything was constructed was just not mm-hmm. how it went down, right? It was, it was <laughs> yeah. all, it was all this kind of random trope. And it seemed like they didn't even talk to the folks right. who yeah. actually engaged in the struggle. They'll yeah. do that. Yeah. They will definitely they, do they that. They will do that. Based on a true story, it's a, it's a slippery slope. Yeah. Man, this Green Book situation, I mean. So let's get into it, but let's start where well, we always like to start. Well, now well, 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 let's, let's, let's go ahead and do a, a, a formal intro. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Sure. So today in the building, uh, very, very excited. If, if you're, you're hearing this already, you get a sense of where we're coming from. We got radical educated Mr. Dave Stovall. Hey. Man, what's happening, y'all? Thank you for having me. Man, thank you so much for being here, Giddy. Uh, like we were about to, to get into, uh, we like to start every conversation with a two-part question. In this time, how is the world treating you, and how are you treating the world? Yeah, I think the world is perpetually reminding me of its brutality. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, there are those that I would say the inner linings of joy. Hmm. Right. But that thing around like, I mean, and it's not just a weather you note. Know, so for your listeners, you know, we're in this moment Ooh. where we're about to get this polar vortex situation. Yeah. But that that to me is just, you know, really deeper lessons around what we're doing to the planet. But the real thing is around Chicago is pushing to be devoid of poor black people. Right. Yeah. Right. And just really kind of recognizing what that means. Right. So it, it looks that way in our schools. It looks that way in terms of employment. It looks that way in terms of health care. But at the same time, people aren't taking it standing down, right? So right. that's the lining of joy for me, right? Mm-hmm. So to know that, you know, folks are committed 
to struggle in this way, yeah. right? And then the second question in terms of what am I doing uh, to the world or for the world, um, for me, I think it's trying to be the best abolitionist educator I can, mm-hmm. right? In terms of just like, what does it mean to be committed to unlearning and relearning? Mm-hmm. So, you know, not taking anything for granted, but also being very intentional about, look, there's a bunch of stuff that's just been taken from folks. Mm-hmm. So if we yeah. bring that back into the public consciousness, what does that mean? Yeah. yeah. And so that's a that's the question. Those are the two ways I think uh, about your two questions. It, it, it goes to actually what we were talking about with those with those tropes of this idea that like deficiency is not inherent, that it's the result of taking something away. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, that there are things that exist that are then, whether it's through like formal divestment or just like the removal of the opportunities for people to live, like that is how you end up with lack. Yeah. Is not because there is capital L lack, yeah. it's because someone made that lack. Engineer yeah. scarcity. Yeah, exactly. Is- and I've been talking about it, you know, from... You all's concept of engineer scarcity, I've been talking about an engineer conflict, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's no longer talking about, it's like, gang violence is a trope, yeah. right? So this thing around really understanding that communities have been pitted against each other because so much has been disinvested of them, right? Mm-hmm. So all these things have been taken, like I said, in, in this planned scarcity, all these things have been taken, and now a city argues for an engineering, and engineering, the goal of engineering is to make life the most simple without error. Mm-hmm. So now huh. when you think about what's happening in black and brown communities in the south and west sides of the city, they become we become the error, right? <laughs> so this thing around <laughs> now I want to be able to avow myself of those things, right? Mm-hmm. I want to erase those things. Mm-hmm. So in erasing those things, now I need a particular practice by which to do it, right? I need to take away school funding. I need to take away mental health centers. I need to talk about bond ratings, pension debt, all these things Mm -hmm. that are really decisions that were made longitudinally. It doesn't come from the allies of any radicality. You know, Jim Edgar, the the governor in the, the early 90s, he was like, look, I told folks 20 years ago, Y'all hadn't paid pension debt. It's 20 years <laughs> later. What do y'all think? He was like, look, it's going to be, it's, it's, you're going to be 15 to $40 billion in debt. What right. do you expect? Mm-hmm. Like, you you haven't paid it for 40 years. <laughs> so now you, you, get, you get this thing. I mean, so these are non-allies talking about chickens coming home to roost, mm-hmm. right? Right. So this, this, so the Trump moment. Right, if they see the chickens. <laughs> exactly. I mean, so if they see the chickens, so this Trump moment is this distraction, mm-hmm. right? And the distraction is really what we're talking about is removal and erasure, which is foundational to life in the United States. Yes, right, the American project, project. Right. At, at its core. Mm-hmm. So if I may, I want to give you some gas early. Mm-hmm. I, I want to mm-hmm. gas you up. All right. Probably about two and a half years now, been able to like share space with you in different ways. A lot of it, shout out to to the OG Barbara mm, Ransby for creating some really amazing rooms. Uh, and you have just been a, a, a mind, an energy, a person that I've just been really drawn to and admire. Uh, and the way that not only you think, but you articulate your thought, which I think are two mm. different mm. exercises, um, speaks to me and captivates mm. me in like 
resonates with the things I'm trying to figure out in the world, even though we we operate in different spaces. So I, I I've said before, Mike, and I just said as we were introducing, I'm giddy to have this conversation. <laughs> this is as like gas and starstruck <laughs> yeah, as David yeah. ever. It, it's funny because we're cool, like we mm. know each other, and, and that's why a joy of doing this show is like in a conversation like this, which doesn't happen enough in mm. public space. I have the excitement of like talking to one of my favorite mm. rappers, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. so for yeah. you as an educator, it's like bring that out. I just want to prop you up, and and with that. Oftentimes in conversation, we kind of just like get into backstory and see where we mm. go. But with you, I know where I want the meat of this conversation mm-hmm. to be. Like there, there's mm. a conversation I really want to capture. So, you know, on the show and in the world, right, like definitely the school closings as a symbol of divestment from public education has been at the core of a lot of people's work, either in response or, you know, in direct resistance mm. to that. And so with that, we know we want an investment mm. in education. But oftentimes, because that fight is so heavy, we have to stop in investing in the structure as it is. And you as, has been like the, the person that I can identify the most that literalizes, mm. that's even a word, mm. um, it is now. that, that mm. school to prison pipeline. And you say that those institutions are designed the same. And we need to engage the conversation of not just abolishing police and prisons, but abolishing school mm-hmm. as we know it. And the first time you said that shit, G, like, <laughs> I was like, yo, you know, all these other academics are like, okay, yeah, cool. All right, next one around the table. I'm like, did y'all just hear my pants? This nigga just, yes, why, why are we not talking about this? Um, so I, I don't even know how to frame that in like mm. a, a compactable question. Well, uh, but that's where I want to start with you. How yeah. do you get to that idea how do you articulate it better than mm. I just did? Uh, and then let's let's ask mm. questions from there. Yeah, surely. That, and thank you for that, man. Uh, I truly appreciate it. Because like you said, it's not it, there's not a lot of space where we, we are able to have this conversation right. in public and just relate and bop like we do. It starts with me really trying to push myself to understand abolition, mm-hmm. right? Because when I first heard the term, I was just like, yeah. all right. <laughs> it, it, was, it was the thing around saying, okay, we don't need this thing called the prison industrial complex, mm-hmm. right? And looking at, all right, we know all the data, right? We know that 7 million people in the United States are under some form, are either incarcerated or some under some form of, of state, county, or national supervision. Mm-hmm. We know that two million people are incarcerated. We know that if the state of Louisiana was a country, it would have the highest incarceration rate in the world, mm-hmm. right? And the United States has the highest incarceration right. rate in the world, <laughs> yeah. incarcerates more people than almost half the globe. Right. So this thing around looking at that. So what I learned from the OG abolitionists, Angela Davis, uh, Ruthie Gilmore, Beth Ritchie, ironically, black feminist abolitionists. Mm-hmm. I think it's important mm-hmm. to yeah, say that, yeah. right? Because what they were challenging me to think about, because when you first think about abolition, it's like, okay, burn the place down, everybody just walks out, uh-huh. right? And that's, they're saying, no, we Let's need go to, to war. Right, and we, we need to think about the abolishing of the conditions mm. that create this particular situation. <laughs> and and that, that, to me, that, that, that struck me in a particular way. Because when you say, what does it mean to abolish the conditions? Right. Because we know the majority, we know 80% of the folks who actually are incarcerated are incarcerated for, quote unquote, crimes of survival. Ooh. Ooh. Right? So now we, we have to think about it. So Can we all, you define that term? So when we talk about crimes of survival, this is things around... Oh, petty drug sales, 
um, what people may refer to as illicit drug sales, drug trafficking, but these are actually forms of employment, mm-hmm. right? right? So if we think about that differently, a person isn't necessarily, we get the trope, from my earlier conversation, yeah. we get the trouble folks who are serving on the block as trying to live it up and get, yeah. get large. Yeah. Trying to get fo- over. Right. And majority of folks who are serving on the blocks or engaging in illicit, petty drug sales are doing that to eat. Mm-hmm. And they make about minimum wage. Exactly. To you all's point, they've been locked out of employment. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you have a class A through X felony in the state of Illinois, you can't hold 52 jobs. You can't work the fry machine at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Right. So this thing around looking at that and abolitionists saying, what does it mean to eliminate those conditions, mm-hmm. right? So now if I think about school and what I'm trying to do and kind of continuing kind of a older uh, stream of thought around this that some folks have put forward, like Carter G. Woodson in a book called The Miseducation of the Negro. Mm-hmm. But this idea, there's a difference between education and schooling, yes. hmm. right? So schooling is this thing where we are rewarded largely for ordering compliance, Right. Not learning. Mm -hmm. Right. right? Because learning will challenge those things that we are complicit with and are acting in compliance to. Mm -hmm. Right. So now if I think about abolition as the abolishing of the conditions that create something like the prison industrial complex, if I think about schools, then schooling is this thing that just rewards us for ordering compliance education is going to have have us ask deeper questions of the school, right? right? Around its existence, around its function, around the pedagogy, around the curriculum. And we've actually had teachers who have engaged this. Mm -hmm. Now, they wouldn't refer to themselves as abolitionists. Right. Right. But they would refer to themselves as not concerned with what the school was intended to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. They were concerned about education and that's why they were always in trouble. Right. They're <laughs> like, I'll be in this school and I can see it better from where I stand. No. And with that position, I'll question and challenge and reimagine and reshape exactly. what this place even looks like. And the district is constantly going to dump on me. Right? right. But I'm not concerned about that because here's what I'm intended to do. And then if I think about it bigger or more broadly, now we have to ask a fundamental question that one of my guys, Kevin Kumashiro, always puts out. He always says, look, the U.S. schooling system was never intended to educate its populace. Mm-hmm. Right. So if we if we even start with there, yeah. if we even start there, there's a larger abolitionist project. Right? right. This thing around saying, well, look, if we're abolishing these conditions of the school and if prison abolition is about abolishing the conditions of people going to mm-hmm. prison, then why can't we think about the dehumanizing positions and experiences of young people of color in schools and work to abolish that? Mm-hmm. And then so I've been writing some stuff around this and one of the articles came out and it was literally called Are We Ready for School Abolition? Mm. Right. And saying like, you know, we, we talk about a prison abolition, but schooling, if we know that school and prisons in some neighborhoods, depending on where you live, are the same place then why are we also working to abolish those? Break, break that down. Yeah, in what I, way are they the same? I agree. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people would take that as hyperbole. Well, yeah, yeah. It's hyperbole. Let's, let's, well, let's take around, let's use an example. So you me, are such a teacher, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, uh, so let's, all right, my example is me and Eve Ewing. Shout out to Youngblood Eve. Out. Ergo alum. Right? <laughs> Squad. Me and Eve taught a class last semester at uh, Statesville Prison. Oh, yeah. That's... Right? That's so, sad, but that's well, a dope yeah, class, though. <laughs> right. So, I mean, so, you know, and, and it was, you know, we had a cracking in and the students, man, shout out mm-hmm. to all the students in our in our class. 
when you walk into Statesville, there's a yellow line down the middle of the hallway and there's signage that says step to the right. Now, when you walk in there, the reason why they have you step to the right is if there are any altercations, everyone can be placed against the wall and the correctional officers can engage the conflict. Right. So it's it's actually kind of a people maneuvering space. So I see that and I'm like, oh, OK. But then I walk into a schoolhouse. It is the exact same signage. It is the exact same lettering. It is the exact same colors. So now if you got this thing and some schools have these policies where young folks have to have to walk with their hands behind their back. Yeah. Like they're what? Handcuffed. <laughs> right. right. So now if I'm thinking about this and I'm saying to myself, Mm-mm, we are no longer talking about school being the place that leads folks to prison. Mm-hmm. The rules are the same mm-hmm. depending on where you live. Mm-hmm. Right. So instead of a school to prison pipeline, we're actually talking about a school in prison nexus. Mm-hmm. Right. They're the same thing mm-hmm. depending on where you go to school. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, you've seen this thing. Um, it's, called, the, it's, it's like house arrest. Exactly. Kind of. right. You see this thing, direct instruction. Right. Where young folks are in front of somebody. and The person is just reading to them. Right. They're reading to them and they're instructing them to track them, track other students and write down what you say. And then get tested on that. Right. And then that's thought about as curriculum, right? right? And you think about to yourself, well, over time, because young people are smart, they're going to start to reject that. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, what we've done to them, we've set them up to reject it. Right. So when they start to reject it, now they're being deviant. And because they're being deviant, now you can either dismiss them or mar- or isolate them in that space. Just like you do in a, in a segregation unit in a prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So- for your listeners, it's not this thing around being hyperbolic, but it's literally around the rules are the same. The optics and aesthetic is the same. Mm-hmm. Right. So so when we we see that. So if I'm talking about the abolition of conditions, why wouldn't I be thinking about that experience yeah. of that young person in that position that I just described? Well, right? I think and I think what you mentioned about like the even just down to the color of the paint. I always think about that when I see the architecture of. You know, there's like the old school, huge mm-hmm. high schools that, you know, they kind of look more like factories. Right. And then you get to the next generation and they look more like prisons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the boxes, there's yeah. grates on the window right. as opposed to like Lane Tech, which looks like they make tires or something <laughs> like that. Right, 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 you know, right. you can tell that there's kind of this pivot, even in the way you think about the layout of the space of like, what are we, like, what realm are we imagining this space mm-hmm. to be in? And how, so how do you think the the, the school space became so carceral because i can imagine where it's just punishment and violence is so deeply embedded Mm -hmm. into our collective subconsciousness Mm -hmm. that like it just emerged Mm because that's all we know how to do Mm -hmm. but then there's something about it where you get to like those details that that feels more sinister that Mm -hmm. feels more antagonistic so in your research like Mm -hmm. where where do you see that that i have to put my conspiracy theory (laughs) right right. my tinfoil right and and to you all's point i would say that you don't have to put your conspiracy theory had on right yeah. it's literally around our observation of public policy right, right? Yeah. and the pivots in public policy so mm-hmm. that hold pivot, on let me put my policy hat on. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> okay. so that so that pivot largely and i think michelle alexander joy james they do a really good job of this this is when we see 
the war on drugs policy mm-hmm. permeate the block. Right. Right. Because the war on drug policies really kind of hit late 60s, but they permeate the block with things like three strikes, mm-hmm. uh, 20 to one, all these things. No that gathering have, on the right, corner. No, the, the, the no loitering right. uh, ordinances in Chicago until 1999. It was actually mm-hmm. referred to as the gang terrorism ordinance. Mm-hmm. Right. So all these things come into view. And now the question in terms of that pivot really goes from because there's always been a carcerality to schools. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think a, one point that we didn't hit is the uniform. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. if you wear you rocking all tan, tan and white, blue and tan, blue and white. These are the same uniforms yeah. that folks are using in, in prisons, right? So in the same food. In the same food. The same company. Yeah. Because I think that that becomes important, mm-hmm. right? So it's not just our optic, but it's literally our description of what's happening. So I think that pivot isn't so much a pivot, but a question around what people refer to as a surplus labor. Now, Right. I'm not the I'm not uh, the expert Marxist or uh, or Kafia, You might be the closest to right, 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 right. But but right, exactly, right. So me rocking the huta now puts it all in context, right? But I think it becomes important that when you think about surplus labor and how surplus labor is racialized. And for your listening audience, when we talk about surplus labor, this is a group of folks who have been expected to work in particular positions. And now those positions no longer exist. And because they no longer exist, there's nowhere to put this grouping of folks. Mm -hmm. So now that surplus now gets rationalized in certain ways. So with that surplus, you disinvest in that grouping of folks and actually put them in spaces of incarceration or what we refer to as carceral right. spaces. Mm-hmm. But there's a thing. And figure out how to make the profit on the back end and around make it, the services of that detainment. Exactly. For at very low cost. Right. Right. In terms of high profit margins. Mm-hmm. So that I think becomes important because when we look at that surplus labor and the racialization of surplus labor, now when we look at the through line historically, this has been the same rationale since the late 18th century. Right. Right. In terms of now what to do with folks. I mean, there's a, a book that actually ironically is out of print that, uh, <laughs> of course, out of print. But it's actually called Who Needs the Negro? Mm-hmm. Right. And it actually talks about black labor being reduced to surplus labor. Right. And now a increase what he refers to, Wilhelm refers to as an increased presence in confinement. Right. Prisons, right. right. So now when we start to think about that work, the pivot really locates itself uh, more so as a through line yeah. than as a pivot. Yeah, right? I've always what you just said makes perfect sense. And I think is is a logic that I've always like when pe- again, the anti-conspiracy, mm-hmm. they're, they're like, let's look at why things evolve the way they do. And the way that industrialization mm-hmm. actually like delayed some of that mm-hmm. op, like quote obsolescence, mm-hmm. you know, if we're reducing people to their labor, mm-hmm. which is what you know fueled slavery, mm-hmm. uh, and then for various reasons that model becomes obsolete, and there are people asking those questions. Industrialization provides like a like stopgap answer mm-hmm. for how do you keep exploiting people, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then as that divests, then you start to see like these underlying tensions of we have no like use for these bodies uh, become more and more 
pronounced and and the only solution left is we have to put them in a in a place that we can then exploit their physical bodies that mm-hmm. other way. And I think there's a important to that point. There's a rationale that mm-hmm. I think we often miss in the lay, in, yeah. the, in those layers that black bodies in particular are always rationalized around how they will be exploited and then excluded. Right. right? So this thing, like, there's a woman here in Chicago uh, who definitely, she would be dope to have on the show. Her name is Catherine Kane Willis. Okay. And she does... I, know um, I like a triple name. Right, 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 right. right. I, I, man, <laughs> Shout she, out to the Kane of it. Man, she can... How many people with PhDs have three names? <laughs> right, right, right. Yo, 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 yo. Man, it's a thing, right? <laughs> So worse than IMDB. She comes, she actually came to my uh me and one of the homies classes, and she is a uh, advocate for drug reform policy. And she's a middle-aged white woman. And you know, we told us she was like, man, we're gonna have somebody come to class tomorrow. You know, she's been through it, going through all these uh these drug cases been in and out of rehab, all these things. She's with the shits. Man, yo. And then, <laughs> then she she walks into class and she's dressed like Madeline Albright, right? <laughs> and everybody's like, Stovall winner, well, you said somebody was going to come through, going through it. I'm like, yeah, she's right here. Right? <laughs> and, they, and everybody's just like, oh. But what, what she did in that class that I thought was just like off the meter in terms of how she made things make sense in terms of how drug policy is racialized. Mm-hmm. She talked about until the 30s, most of what we consider to be illicit drugs were legal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So she talked about, and then she referred to cocaine, the history of cocaine. And cocaine used to be given to black dock workers in the Southeast. Exactly. So she goes into, and white dudes who really weren't losing jobs, but just needed a rationale to mm-hmm. exclude, further exclude black folks, came up with this thing called. Black dock worker syndrome, right? You know, just strange thing. Yeah. And it was arguing that if you give black folks cocaine, right. then they go crazy and rape white women, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So now this creates this whole public outcry, and black men get to- completely excluded from labor on docks, mm-hmm. right? So this thing around how we begin to think about, I think the layer that needs to be uh, lifted up and paid attention to is how this exclusion is also racialized, right? It happens along the lines of race and it's always important to pair race and poverty, right? Mm -hmm. And then with that race, poverty, and gender, Mm -hmm. right? In terms of whose labor is is completed in what place, whose labor is performed in what place, how that's understood, and then who gets what for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, So we went a full, like a... Like Olympic level dive. Right, right, right. I'm swimming. I'm <laughs> backstroking <laughs> right now. <laughs> We're just floating in the pool. But right. let's take one second to backtrack. Right. Um, we didn't even need Damon to gas it up to prove that you know your shit. <laughs> um, where for you is the moment of being in a classroom when you go, this is something that I am interested in understanding the mechanisms of? Right. It's always around folks asking a very pointed question, right? And not taking it, not taking what I'm putting out as face value. So what were the questions that you asked initially that got you engaged? Right. For me, it was like, you know, what is this Columbus madness? <laughs> like, I mean, like, like straight up, like, like for real. I was just like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Let, me, let me get this right. Right. And I was like five, right. I'm saying to myself, wait, okay, dude, 
<laughs> is trying to get to this spot. He goes the wrong way. He's working for these other folks who sell their jewelry to pay him. He goes the wrong way, lands in the wrong place, calls people the wrong name, and then gets, brings all his homies to bring death and destruction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and homie gets a holiday? Yeah. I'm like, man, what are we doing? What yeah. the fuck? Like, yeah. you know, like, as, as, like that one, I was just completely miffed by. I was just like, wait, 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 wait. And then that just kind of morphed into all this other stuff, like chopping down cherry trees, <laughs> yeah. freeing, the, freeing the slaves. I'm like, Mm-mm, that don't sound right, right? <laughs> and, 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 but that thing around really being able to ask those questions of history and actually having some backing, you know, from the OGs or elders or family members and be like, you know, it didn't happen like that, right? Right, so we just having folks. Who are the people in your life who were going? You know, it didn't happen like that. It was always my pops, my uncles, and my godmother. Mm-hmm. Right, she would, and my grandmother because my grandmother is kind of the the matriarch of it of it all. Shout mm-hmm. out to grandma, man who who uh you know made her transition last year at one hundred. Oh, so wow. so that crazy. thing around. So like being in her house, she had all these. These history books, right? She had, mm-hmm. she had uh, from Superman to Man, Black Rage, Miseducation of the Negro. Uh, yeah, some John Henry Clark in there. Man, I'm man, sure. John Henry Clark, the Black <laughs> names. Man, look, right, right, the Black Book. She had uh, Joe Lewis's autobiography, Lena Horne's autobiography. Mm-hmm. So I'm as I'm a young person, just kind of soaking this mm-hmm. up. Yeah, mm-hmm. and her lesson to me was always. It is critically important to know who you are because the world will say that you are not those things. Mm. That pushed me to say, all right, well, wait, there's a whole different kind of question that we need to ask here. And it was always her willingness to engage because as an older woman, she was like, you know, you all have a world of young people, right? You, you all have a world as young folks, right? I don't know that world. I don't, I don't claim to know that world, hmm. right? But what I will do is support you in making that claim, whatever it is, mm. right? So for me, that was always the thing because she, me and another cousin, we were deemed to be the black sheep of the family because we was always just like, look, we about to do it. Let's get it. And she was, she was like, okay. Right? But like, well, if, if, if you're clear about that, I want you to be able to do it, but you need to be clear about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. she was, she really kind of fueled my interest in saying that we need to think about these things differently. So let's, let's go even one more rung back. Mm. Do you know what it was for her that got her understanding uh, that the world well, is going to be telling me that I'm someone different than who I am? Good question. Let's yeah, she, stay there. She's from, my grandma's from a place called Mariana, Arkansas. Okay. Mm. She came to Chicago in 1938. Mm. That and sounds like a 1937 place. <laughs> right, 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 right. Man, look, man, you've been American. It's all, it is that space. And she and a group of folks that she knew who also worked at the post office mm. were some of the first residents of the Ida B. Wells homes. Wow. Mm. And the Ida B. Wells homes at that time were thought to be an architectural and structural innovation right. because on the south side these were spaces that had full plumbing and what they referred to as central heating mm-hmm. so these things so her ability of acting she worked at the old main post office or off of Harrison okay. so she in going to those spaces she was always observant 
right? And she was saying, well, no, what does what is in the rest of the world? So I'm from Arizona, Arkansas. I come to Chicago. Chicago is part of the world, but there are other parts <laughs> of the world, yeah. right? So she goes on this this 40 year journey where my hmm. grandmother went to all 50 states. Wow. wow. Yeah, so she she went to office and she wrote it up for me as a high schooler and I lost it. What oh, the no. fuck? Yeah, it's just, just, that's, that's sad. just the most terrible shit, right? Because she was going with it was not sweet. Sweet man, <laughs> it was <laughs> not sweet to make that move. It and was not a, a Marley and Me type road trip. Man, look, and the last trip was in the 80s. Her and my aunt, who was the roadie, like they they went mm-hmm. everywhere together. Yeah. They were, they were uh, sisters. And... Their last trip was to Alaska. They went to the fiftieth state. They they were just like, all right, look, we, we and I remember when I was I was like in like either like seventh eighth grade maybe, and I was like, yeah, child, we about to go to Alaska. I'm like, what? And, they, and it was like, yeah, we got the we got everything together, Alaska. And I'm like, whoa, right? Two black women in Alaska, right? And they and they, and they did it. They did it right, and it was this whole thing around to not just to do it, but to say. We are in the world and we will now move like we are in the world. Right. Right. In, in terms of just making. But I think her come from Mariana to Shy, working at the post office, now allowed her to say, okay, there's other, there's, I got other means by yeah. which to mm-hmm. make these things happen. I think about that kind of travel a lot. As someone who has, I'm not at 50, I'm at 47. Right. Yeah. But as someone who, like, a huge percentage of, the context that I have for why things are the way they are is because I understand that they're different from what I was told about a place. Mm-hmm. And I've actually been there and seen it with my own eyes. Right. And I think about that in, se- in terms of a sense of ownership or um, investment right. in, or like an ownership stake in this project of this country. Right. And you think about when you go to national parks, it, it, I've always been fascinated by like the, the racial dynamics of it because here's who goes to national parks, white people, and like Indian and Southeast Asian mm-hmm. people. Those are like the, and some Latinx folks, but for mm-hmm. the most part, it's mm-hmm. like white people and mm-hmm. Southeast Asian people. And there's the sense of like, um, you know, these are rare examples of the public mm-hmm. in a way that has been divested mm-hmm. in a lot of places and other countries don't even have this conception mm-hmm. of public land, um, but public for whom, mm-hmm. who can engage with it. And I think, that makes a big difference for people who have the sense of like, not I, this place was built for me, mm-hmm. but I have a stake in this too. And like, mm-hmm. I can go and enjoy these things, um, you know, that aren't just, I can get a big TV. Mm-hmm. I can participate in the capitalist oh. part, but like mm-hmm. this land is land that I have a stake in. Right. I always think that that would be really meaningful for a lot of people. And just thinking about, you know, I always think about how uh, the Lakota view Mount Rushmore, hmm. Right. Because they, you know, a lot of folks think about it as, you know, this great monument, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, this is the biggest act of public defacement yeah. in time immemorial, yeah. right? And then walking and seeing that, and they're just like, nah, homie, this yeah. this is this is not it. I, I gotta, that shit also looks ridiculous. <laughs> right, right. I got a bar about Mount Rushmore. We should uh we should blow the noses off of it. Yeah, hey, hey, yo, <laughs> yo, yo. And that, that whole thing, I mean, but that thing. The verse coming yeah, exactly, man. Cause that, cause that's that's the whole thing around who has this space because it's that misinterpretation that I think we get keyed up in, right? Because when we talk about material wealth, First Nations Indigenous communities were saying the responsibility to the land is not to own it. 
Mm-hmm. But to, to be res- to do it, it right, yeah. to be responsible to it, yeah. right? So now, how do we demonstrate in our lives that we are responsible yeah. to land, right? Mm-hmm. And not acting ways that are irresponsible, right? So cornering it off, the whole thing around, and really seeing what that means over time, mm-hmm. right? And then you kind of look at this stuff. I mean, you know, it's 2019. You got parts of the Navajo Nation, parts of the Lakota Nation on the res who still don't have running water. Right. Mm. I mean, like that. These are these these questions. Like in terms of going back to a, an abolition mm-hmm, perspective, mm-hmm. we can't think of ourselves as divorced from that. Yeah. Right. As, as an educator, how do you think we address the consciousness of that? Because you know, as you start to step outside of like the confines of the norm of thought here in this Western American project, right. you know, it becomes clear that like the relationship human beings have to land is violent, mm-hmm. right? But in our society, the right to private ownership of land is so deeply embedded, even like, especially to black people, right? Mm-hmm. Like through the trauma, it's mm-hmm. like we see the idea mm-hmm. of we need our fence, mm-hmm. we need our private plot mm-hmm. to be able to survive and mm-hmm. build from. But that seems counter to like mm-hmm. the central laws huh. of nature. Yeah. Um, and is not a liberatory end, right? right? It might right. be means that make sense. Right. So as, as, an, as an educator, how do you see it being able to like, you know, just like a, oh. think of like a, a freshman one-on-one class. Right. Yeah. How do you break that thing that is so deeply internalized for these last few centuries? I take a lesson from one of the L.A. homies, Patrick Kamenyan, who's a longtime English teacher. He's now a prof at the University of San Francisco. And he used to roll uh, with a blood set in L.A., and he always tells his story, and I'm just like, damn, that's it. He got caught up on a he got caught up on a charge, so he was in LA County Jail. And he said, you know, of course, you know, at that time, this is gang war time, the uh gang injunction, all the beefs that were happening out in LA. He said that when you walked into when you walked into the main area, of course it was split, blood crip. He said that in that split, there was all this fighting over phones, hmm. right? Who's going to have access to a phone? Who's going to use it? And he said this one OG pulled him to the side and was like, you see what this is, right? And he was like, what are you talking about? He was like, look, we're engaged in this monumental fight of something that should be ours in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. There should be no what, phones. Yeah. Like we, we, bang, we banging on each other in a space for phones, for access to a phone. And what it really was is a fake display of power, Mm -hmm. right? Right? So now we bang on each other without any entree into what has been banging on us. So he, he First of all, I just want to commend your OG voice when you went into yeah. to OG character. It was man. it was captivating. Yeah, right. yeah, and, and he, I could like see the outfit. Like, right, man, yo, and he, and I, I hope to be that one yeah, day, right? Yeah. So he he would always engage his high school classes. He was like, look, you know, because you know, a couple of his students, you know, were in sets or what have you, and he would just be like, look, somebody is banging on you. Somebody has mm. stolen something from you. Mm. How are you going to get your shit back? Mm. Right. And then and, you know, because it's 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 disheveling for a young blood to hear that because it's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like, you know, I'm good. You know, I got yeah. I, you know, I, I got some things I got. You know, I, I'm cool. Nobody. Nobody came up on a strong arm. Jack me. You know, he was like, Mm-mm. they didn't. Jack, they don't have to jack anything that you have on your physical being. Right. They've jacked your mind. 
Mm. Right. So now, how do you reclaim your mind? Mm. Right. How do you, you reclaim who you are? And then looking at that saying, OK, now let's start with what's been stolen. Yeah. Right? And then asking a, the, the perennial through question. Now that you figure out what has been stolen. How are you going to get it back? Right. Yeah. And then why has it been stolen? Yeah. What, how does that advantage the world that we live in stealing this from you, yeah. right? Yeah. Knowledge of yourself, knowledge of who, who you are, knowledge of your history, knowledge of language, knowledge of how to actually be self-determining, mm-hmm. right? And not dependent, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So now when you ask, when you ask those questions, they go into an entirely different space. But I think that's the turning point, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah. I, and I use that with my with my high schoolers, my college students. I was going to ask what the, you know, that that's a question that makes sense in a certain logic with a high school kid in LA yeah, or right. in Chicago. What are the differences or similarities in that logic with, you know, UIC is not U Chicago right. or Oberlin or whatever, uh, but what are the differences in the logics with what you, the questions you're getting your college right. kids to ask? Yeah, because what I've noticed in my undergrad, in fact, the class I taught this morning, what I see is the wheels turning. Mm-hmm. Like, look, like a lot, of, a lot of responses from my students have been in the last couple of weeks since we started classes. Like, damn, stuff. All this is fucked up. <laughs> yeah. It was like, I was like, damn. And my point is, okay, let's go into the fucked upness, yeah. right? Why has why why do you think it advantages somebody not to engage you in this, yeah. right? So now, if it advantages somebody not to engage you in this, what will you do to switch it up, yeah. right? And then, like, so like uh, my, my that's son, deep. That was such a frustrating part of, yeah. of my college experience. It's like you're getting all the issue, all the problems. I was, and the fact that I, when I started learning these things in a, a ex, you know, exclusionary space, mm, right. it was like I had the ability to understand this five years ago. Yeah, you know, like this was not, this is not too complex <laughs> for me. This is just literally was never presented before me, and that was really <laughs> frustrating to be learning it. It's like. We are learning this way too late. Right. And, and, pre- and the perennial question, right? So what does, and this I've been asking this for the last 25 years, what does it mean to tell kindergartners the real Columbus story? Mm. Right? Just in real mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, just, just and supporting them asking questions because when we talk about school abolition, the thing that we kill in school, this kind of ordering compliance, is the ability to ask questions. Mm-hmm. Right? Right? So like one of, we, me and I got this, I got this uh, practice from one of my homegirls. Like, she would look at her freshmen. These are freshmen high schoolers. She would always look at them and say, how many of you all are waiting for the worksheet? <laughs> and, they, and they all look like, what? What are you talking about? And she's like, yeah, no, for real. And they would slowly re- kind of raise their hand, be like, me, mm. right? <laughs> and then it's like, all right, y'all, there is no worksheet, right? <laughs> there is one and there will not be one. Mm. So now our commitment is to go someplace else. Mm. Right. And they once they... Like oh, like where, 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 where we gonna go, right? But this this thing around really kind of pushing that, and, and like you said, I mean, I, I think of myself as just continuing that through line, right? Mm-hmm. This was taught to me. I had a fourth grade teacher who was just like, "Look, the world wants to do something to you. Mm. The world wants to say certain things about you, and the world has a particular set of plans for you if you do not interrupt them, mm-hmm. right?" So well, you gotta like. Reject the premise, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and she would say, what would you? What are you going to do to prove them wrong? Mm-hmm. Right? So this thing around... So as a fourth grader, I'm like, right, look, we in now. Mm-hmm. Look, we, it's, it's, a, it's not even a question. But I think even getting folks to that, right? But also not just the 
accurate view of history, but now say, okay, well, what is the possibility? Mm-hmm. So yeah. now knowing this thing, what are we willing to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Given this thing. Yeah. Yeah. So b- before we were on mic, right? Like we're talking about where you're at now mm-hmm. and we're talking about some of your research. It's around, you know, the local triangle of, you know, CPD, CPS, and public housing, uh, which I think is a triangle of harm and mm. violence, right? So that kind of as the background of the information you're pulling from, I want to like project vision, mm-hmm. right? Of, of we know that the way that education is institutionalized now is oppressive and harmful. Um, in the, the, the radical imagination of creating a new future that we cannot yet touch. What do you see from what you know about how bad it is uh, as to how learning and education should be institutionalized in our communities? Right. I think this thing around really thinking about what is authentic community engagement, Mm -hmm. right? So this thing around, so, and, and if we actually operate from an abolitionist perspective, do these new things that we have or create, do we even call them schools? Right, because you know, and it's and it's kind of an interesting thing for me, mm-hmm. because there's a history there, right? So when CPS tried to up its game in the '80s, and this was because of, because of a consent decree mm-hmm. that actually uh, charged them to desegregate, but there wasn't enough white kids in the district at the time. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's always you know, the, you know, the feds get this stuff strange all the time, right? <laughs> and they rescinded that consent decree in 2008. So when that first happened, and that was '81, you get your, essentially your magnet schools in the city, mm-hmm. right? So on the south side of the city, it was places like McDade, Robert A. Black, Beasley. Mm-hmm. And I always think about Beasley because Beasley was no longer called a school. It was called an academic center, mm-hmm. right? So it's, a, so it's kind of this preface for that, right? Mm-hmm. right? So I think one of those things around this future that we're building towards that we may not be able to touch is what do we call these places, yeah. right? The other thing is reinstituting and concretizing local control, mm-hmm. right? And what I mean by that is things like a locally elected school board with all the machinations and rules that need to be in those things, mm-hmm. but also really having an overview curricularly around what it is that we're trying to do in those spaces, thinking about schools as true community outlets. So having things like clinics, adult education, mm-hmm. breakfast, any kind of... Uh, any kind of services, right. having those in school spaces yeah. because there's a long time, there's a long history mm-hmm. of schools having those things. Right. So now thinking about it in that way and also thinking about, and I shouldn't say a local control, but a localized control because mm-hmm. co- local control can be kind of put into this kind of policy wrong. Kind of yeah. Thing. And yeah. these making these fiefdoms, right? We, we wouldn't want. Cochran having too yeah, much. exactly. <laughs> like you, you, don't, you, you don't want that. You don't want that thing. But you or are local, Burke. right? You want, you want that localized control. Wow, where, what does the Willie Cochran school look like? Man, oh my yo, god! Oh my god! Look. <laughs> and then the other part about it would be now thinking about that in terms of the practice in those buildings. But to your point, who do we start with? Because a lot of times when we have these innovations in schools. They're for folks with resources. Mm-hmm. Right. So now, what would it mean to identify, say, for example, the most historically excluded communities mm-hmm. in Chicago, right? And then have those spaces of learning and engagement in those spaces. But there's So there's a danger to that, right? Mm-hmm. Which is this like lab rat experimentation right. thing, which we see with the charter schools. We see right. in all kinds of ways right. where, you know, we'll try out right. a new, a new right. model 
And then if it fails, we blame the kids. Right, right, right. <laughs> and and then start over, and then another set of grants and another right, set right. of investment happens for that. And I think that that framework happens because of the power being removed from the space, right? Exactly. And so that's where the the, the communal the local lo- power base is and needed. That, and that thing, and you always have this feedback loop because, and I think where these quote unquote experiments go wrong is that they're never taking into account what the express community need is, mm-hmm. right? And that I think that's that's the thing that because like you said, all these spots come up and then they they pat themselves on the back for being so great. Mm-hmm. Right? And then I always ask them, all right, what how are you all engaging in families? Right. right? Then you then they talk about these random parent councils that have no power. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So it's this thing around really saying, well what does it mean to actually assess community need? And then actually build out a plan that responds to express community need, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a different visioning, right? Mm-hmm. And folks don't do that because in this kind of American project, certain folks aren't believed to have the capacity right. to do it, right? Because mm-hmm. right? sure. mm-hmm. that was a big thing with LSCs, but the issue Which was is... local school councils right, right, right. that were community members, teachers, students uh, who actually had oversight of a school's hiring of the principal and budget. Mm -hmm. Now, the issue was the city of Chicago cut funding for the people who were doing LSC training. Mm -hmm. So that, and that was a, that was a radical project because those folks who were doing trainings were giving folks the real on schools. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So some of those trainings would be like the top 10 lies your principal will tell you. (laughs) Right. I mean, like think about, that is a training, Uh-oh. right? Sounds, so, like a, sounds like a BuzzFeed quiz. Right, exactly, right? So now... I, I'm seeing, like, the opposite class where the principals are, like, the top ten lies to tell people. <laughs> right, 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 right. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Here's how you run game, right? It's actually yeah. the same handout. Yeah. You're yeah, waiting exactly. for the worksheet. Yeah. Right, exactly. And that, But that type of thing. And then when the district took over the training, I mean, it just became mind-numbing. So, hmm. so what I'm hearing, uh, which is, you know, a, a realization I came to probably about two years ago, is that once we kind of reduce and connect all of the separate struggles we we fight for at the root of it it feels like participatory democracy seems to be a foundational key it's without question and that that thing around how do you preserve the integrity mm-hmm. of participatory democracy and that's what then the education mm-hmm. space should be is because mm-hmm. i think right now because of our conditioning mm-hmm. we actually are not capable for full democratic participation. Like, they're not wrong when they say that it can't work currently. It could, it could work, work yeah. but it's been designed to not work, so now we right. need to teach ourselves. Or to, to work it. for a certain group of people. Right, 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 right. right. So, like, I always think about Charlie Cobb, who always talks about, he reflects on the Mississippi Freedom Summer. Mm-hmm. And he said, he always talked about black folks in Mississippi checked them. And huh. he said, look, mm, don't be coming here. You know, that, that's not, <laughs> yeah. because voting is one part of yeah. it, Right. So they actually established these three questions, mm. and it was and it was actually developed by the youth in the Freedom School. Mm-hmm. And they said, "Look, what do we want that white society has? What do we not want mm. that white society has? And what are we willing to do to build what we need?" Mm. Right. So those questions came from young folks, and I think that's the most under discussed thing about the Freedom Summer, mm-hmm. right? Because those young folks they clapped back on. The folks who were coming and talking about this voting carpet rights. carpet bagging, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. professional organizers just, type yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, they were like, Mm-mm, that's not what we need. That's yeah. that's not that's not our express concern here. And what those, a great three questions yeah. to ask. Man, I mean, and it was, and that thing, I think, that was the participatory question, mm-hmm. right? That's why Fannie Lou Hamer was saying, look, we're talking about 
being disenfranchised, but disenf- being disenfranchised structurally, mm-hmm. right? And I think a lot of times, you know, when we start to teach this, it always gets caught up in voting rights, mm-hmm. right? But this was a, this was really around self determination, yeah. right? Right, and how people were understanding that, mm-hmm. right? So that's now, just one symbolic expression of that, exactly. Yeah. And, I, and when you co-opt the historical record, that's the one that you can extract. That's kind of the least confrontational yeah, exactly. to white. It's not. It's not threatening. It's not. Yeah. It's, it's the. It's the most non-threatening, right? right? So when you start to talk about it, that's why folks like Barbara Rands become so important because they talk about Ella Baker in this way. We dismiss her criticality, right? So Ella Baker challenged King. Mm-hmm. She was like, look, blood, it's really going down. And you got to be careful because now if you're not including the voices of folks, you're not going to be able to do the things that you set out to do, mm-hmm. right? And from her check, the check of the young people that she supported, King shifted, mm-hmm. right? He changed up post-65. Mm-hmm. He started to look at his world differently, mm-hmm. right? But that was only because... Folks like Ella Baker, at that time, Stokely Carmichael, mm-hmm. Daisy Bates were pushing him to say, yeah. this isn't, this The people this that weren't in Selma. Exactly. Right, 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 right. right. That's <laughs> saying, yeah. yeah, saying like, look, man, that, that's not necessarily what we need here. That's some good education. That's, yeah. a, that's some not schooling. That's some education, education that like man. gets you to think differently and ask those questions. And we and that, that stuff had just been erased, <laughs> essentially, from history, mm-hmm. right? And just kind of saying like, no, nah, there's a group of folks who were saying, Mm-mm, we really are having a different set of questions to ask. And when we ask those questions, y'all ain't necessarily going to like the masses <laughs> right? so, in terms of in mm-hmm. the real time. What do you think of this moment for 40 years from now when it's being taught in whatever spaces it's being taught right. in? Right. What are you most worried will be erased? I think the thing that I worry the most about being erased is the contribution of a black queer feminist lens. Mm-hmm. All three sections of it, right? Mm-hmm. The blackness of it the queerness of it, the female-identified energy of mm-hmm. it, right? Because I think those things, like if, if I could write another book and get it right, it would just be called Black Women Told Me, <laughs> right? And, and, I, and I didn't listen, right? <laughs> but that, I mean, like, like, I mean, but like for real in terms mm-hmm. of who has, all, and I think it's a perennial question, mm-hmm. right, around who has not been listened to and who has been the driving force in shifting how we understand struggle, right? Huh. Because I think a lot of times, you know, and academics get into, unfortunately, a lot of minutia around it. Mm-hmm. But we don't necessarily get into what the push was and what that push meant on the ground. Yeah. So folks like Kianga Yamatha Taylor is actually saying, no, we gotta t- we got to pay attention to this, right? Mm-hmm. Because... The Kambahi River Collective mm-hmm. told folks 30 years ago, Yeah, now we just coming to it. Yeah. She interviewed all those folks and they said, well, look, when we talked about identity politics, we were talking about your how you understand yourself is connected to how you understand power. Yeah. Right. right. Not this Fox News identity mm-hmm. politics, right? But, but your humanity has to come before exactly. you know, these and, institutional structures and we understand we understand solidarity I mean they had a critique of late what they referred to as late stage capitalism in the 80s right right so this thing it was early to the late stage now we're really late (laughs) right right, exactly right so we hella now we can call it hella late stage capitalism I mean you know but that 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 thing around but I think that that's my worry that we don't take that we don't take that into account right because I always think about as a Chicagoan growing up in the late 70s early 80s 
I grew up in a black queer space and I never really paid attention named. to it. It wasn't named, right? But it was house music. Yeah. Uh, right? Yeah. House house music is black queer space, period. Yeah. Right. Right? And and it's it, global now. And, and it's global, right? Yeah. But it, as a young person, you're just like, yo, this is a whole, this is the style show before it was called Balls or Voguing. You know, yeah. you go mm-hmm. to the style show yeah, yeah. because they was playing the banging music, right? Yeah. But that thing around really understanding what that has meant. And I think as a cisgender straight male. Mm-hmm. Wow, you really put a growl behind the male. Male. <laughs> male, male, right? Because like people always say like, they like, Stole, you always come off as hella dude. Right? Huh. But <laughs> You but, are super dude. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about it. Finish it though. Yeah. I want to come back yeah, to yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that thing around thinking about that in terms of that 40 year window, because I would argue that that would just be a continuation of the through line. We haven't paid attention to that, right? And that's always been the reminder in the struggle. It's always this through line of folks saying, who has not been seen? Mm -hmm. What have we been dispossessed of? Mm -hmm. What are we willing to do Mm -hmm. to get what has been stolen from us? And now how will we do that in solidarity and community with each other? Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, I hear that as how do we continue to build this coalition that accounts for and centers the marginalization and realizing within the the trauma of that marginalization has like dialectically emerged a lens beyond what we can see kind of when we're stuck in these norms. Yeah. So that was like a big word way to get to back to that dudeness yeah. uh, that I think is a significant part of what attracts me to you and like the, the admiration I feel mm. uh, is because as someone who has come to critique most of what like mm. normal masculinity has meant, mm. but cannot fully discard it all, right? right? Like it still has made me and I still live within it and perform some of it. Right. Uh, I think I see a kindred right. or an example in you that is able to maneuver in these spaces. Right. And like, where did that come from? Because most of us can't get there, right? right. So like that tension of you do mm. right. have some very right. traditional masculine energy, right. but you're up here right. upholding this intersectional lens I think this thing around, I think a couple of folks in particular. One, my grandmother, who I talked about, was just was just like, "Look, Super you know, we're trying to make it. We trying to we trying to make it happen. What what are you willing to do?" Yeah. I think my mom, who is just like a firecracker, like my mom, like that's a she is. My mom will be a party of one. Like she will start a party <laughs> anyway. Like, look, what y'all doing? What y'all on? What's, what what we doing right now? Right? You know, who's somebody who's almost eighty? Right? She's still like that. Like, look, let's get it. What y'all trying to do? Okay. Like that that thing. I think the combination of those energies and then my pops was actually like kind of a very low kind of mellow type of dude. Mm-hmm. But then my partner, right? Shout to Irene Juanisa who who. Shout says out. who says this to me, man? And she said this to me about three weeks ago, and I was like, Ugh. Right? <laughs> yeah, that was literally the response of all your listeners. That was little, like, Ugh, Ugh. <laughs> right? She said, you know, your commitment. How does your commitment to revolutionary struggle make you a better partner? Mm-hmm. And I was just like, ooh, <laughs> right? Because those are the, those right. are the questions yeah, yeah, yeah. that we should be asking. That's what we need to build right. upon. And that's, that's, on, that's on a plane where you can actually have tangible exactly. impact, right? I think it's something I've been thinking a lot about. When, you, when you're someone who has been in organizing spaces a lot, mm-hmm. you start going like, well, we need this campaign, we need this mm-hmm. initiative, we need all that. It's like, you can start at the level of the one-on-one interactions to mm-hmm. the people. When we say accountable, like, I 
find myself there's no one i'm more accountable to than my partner right right. (laughs) you know and and that's you know there's a book two books in particular there's one called revolutionary mothering and then another one uh, called The Revolution Starts at Home, mm. right? And it's, it's about, and it's actually women identified folks talking about the ways in which they've called for unity amongst themselves, amongst intense trauma from partners, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I think for me, it's one thing to recognize that I live in that struggle, mm-hmm. right? And there are tragic mistakes sometimes that are made. Mm-hmm. And, but still, those things that I must be accountable to. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, working to be at peace with myself and mm-hmm. how I am in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that sounds like such a poignant moment. Yeah. Like, whatever is comfortable for you. Yeah. Like, it, w- was there something that was being challenged when she asked that question? Yeah, I was mad about, uh, we went to this uh, aldermanic candidate forum. Mm-hmm. That'll do and, it. Yeah, yeah, man. Yo, <laughs> man, and I was just like, man, what a, what what is going on here? And I was like, <laughs> man, you know, because you you get into this, we got to do better. And then she was like, okay, well, who needs to do better, mm. right? And, and how do we understand? It? It's just like because it's always because she, you know, and it was a good challenge, right? She says you always some dishes are here. We can do better with well, exactly <laughs> right, right, right. Like you can you can you can figure out some other stuff, homie, right? But this <laughs> thing around and, and somebody from herself who's an organizer, right? right, right, right. So she, <laughs> we don't have to do better. We need to do dishes. That's right, right, man. Look, hit that garbage, bro. Yeah, you know that thing around being able to take that and now shift it. Right. And right. say, all right, I see what folks are doing. What does it mean to do something different? How are you willing to, to do that? Right. And that I think that was the a thing for me to just be like, yo, like I, I have to, you know, it's back to a quote from Timmy Well Black. Right. Timmy Well Black was long time. Just hit 100. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm, praise the mm-hmm. praise the creator. Right. Timmy Well Black would always, he was my uncle's history teacher at DuSable. Wow. wow. So he, uh, he and said, like half of Chicago's history teacher. Man, yo. <laughs> and he, um, he said this thing. He said, he would always say this thing. And I was like, man, that's what it is. He's all life is political. Mm-hmm. Right. And not, you know, in terms of partisan politics, of course, but this thing around all life is connected by how, how we understand power, what we will do mm-hmm. with it, how we create yeah. it and now how we navigate it. So all life is expressed through organized right. structure. Yep. So how do you think about that in the classroom? And we'll wrap uh-huh. soon. But understanding the ways that when you're at the front of the room, you're reinforcing or at right. least mitigating and living within right. perceptions of power. Right. What kind of choices do you make to uh, undermine some of those right. quote tropes that we keep coming back. Right. To. And I always think about well, what are the rules of this space? Right. And what are, what what of these rules make absolutely no sense? <laughs> <laughs> and if those if I can identify those rules that absolutely make no sense, then I'm going to reject them. Mm-hmm. Right? right. And then what is the building of new space? Mm-hmm. Right. How do we actually now, for lack of a better term, make a new day? And then the third thing, how do I demonstrate solidarity with my students, right? So not as someone who has these answers, quote unquote, right? right? But to say, no, look, I mean, I'm saying this, I'm living in this contradiction too, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I have to figure out how I'm engaging in this contradiction, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and engaging in that contradiction in the mundane ways, right? So I'll crack a joke with students. I'm like, how many of y'all went to homophobic Chick-fil-A today? Because <laughs> Chick-fil-A got a spot at UIC, mm-hmm. right? And it's just like, how many, how many of y'all went to homophobic Chick-fil-A today? And then it's like, well, it's like, look, Polynesian sauce be smacking stuff all you tripping, right? And I'm just like, look, you know, and I had to, I had to sit with that and say to myself, yeah, because I was going to homophobic Chick Fil A. I had to 
I had to figure that out. I'd be like, nah, because I can't be claiming solidarity when I know what these folks are doing. Mm. That right? would be a funny branding choice on their part. Right, right, right. Homophobic Chick-fil-A, right? Yeah. And, and we, homophobic, homophobic evangelical Christian Chick-fil-A, yeah. right? Because yeah. I think it's important for students, young folks to see that you're not above this. Right. Right? That you're also that going. That we're all in the yeah, soup. Man, you're going through this, right? Yeah. And, and when they're able to see your struggles, then they're much more likely to say, okay, well, look, we're, there's no ask here to be the perfect human, right? right? It's really to recognize how we're struggling, mm-hmm. right? right? And then what are we willing to do to shift that? And like, you know, I think Buddhist folk get this right, man. When you talk, when you start to talk about what does it mean to end suffering, right? right? And that's a whole different thing. Like oh, that end of suffering mm-hmm. is a conceptually to me and in real life, that I think is... The broader question. So school abolition mm, for me. It took me like four seconds to really like that, take that question there. Yeah. Because school abolition to me, you know, in some ways conceived, is that commitment to end suffering. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it's a really kind of because we're in these spaces where we're asking folks to suffer. Right. <laughs> for no good reason. Yeah. Right. And we right? know it. We, and and it, we know it. And there's a difference between struggle and suffering. suffering right? right. Like struggle is not inherently a bad thing. It's mm. the way that we learn. It's the way right. we understand. It's the way we come together. But suffering is a is an imposition. Right. It is the intent. Right. Right. So that, that thing around the imposition. And how do we now start to grapple with that? Because we would not ask anybody else to experience that. Hmm. We just wouldn't. We wouldn't do it. Right. Huh. So like all these people who purport, you know, charters or what have you. The question I always ask for them is like, how many of you have a kid who goes here? Well, that's always the clearest indication. Right. Like Rom can <laughs> close schools and send his kids to Nutria. Like yeah. where when it when it's when you are forced to participate or do, where do you choose to to dive to divert mm, your your own the people who you actually have to care about and choose I'm, to care about? Man, I know we have to go. But that no, one, one thing that I would love, like two homies, uh. Daniel Morales Doyle, another three names, <laughs> right? And Alejandro Frostro. These are two of the homies. We got to put another name for Alejandro. Right, 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 right. Just give, give you, Alex, we're going to give you another, another name. <laughs> two homies got two babies and they walk their babies to school, mm. right? And they go to a space that they believe in and not just doing this because they know schools. They know what happens in schools. And their thing is, no, I, our thing here is asking a deeper question around the public commons. Mm-hmm. Right. What will we do to ensure? So it's not us just saying this thing, but it's literally living there. And Alejandra teaches there. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's a whole different thing. So now that dynamic, it changes it up because the optic is different. Right? So she's like, right. look, my I literally can go in the lunchroom mm-hmm. and see my son. Right, mm-hmm. I can walk around a corner and see my daughter. Mm-hmm. Right, but this thing around, and they're like, "Mom, leave me alone." <laughs> right, they're like, "Man, you messing up." And look, like, you know, the, the guy's son, the guy's son, Joaquin. You know, he got a, he got a little situation. It's not time for the radical struggle right now. Right, right, right. He got, he got a little situation because you know the little, the young homie across the street. You know, they smiling at each other a lot. You know, second grade, second grade situations. Right. So now he looking at mom second like, "Man, you busting up, you busting up my, my whole spot. Man, I'm, I'm trying to do." Something right now, you. Did you have a second grade 
girlfriend? Wow, man, not a girlfriend. I, it was somebody I liked, but she was like, nah, Stovall. You, you want to give her a shout out? Man, look. <laughs> you were Stovall even the second right, you she's, like, look, she's like, nah, look, 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 I didn't even get, I didn't even get the Stovall. It was just like the, nah. <laughs> Did you have a second grade girlfriend? Yeah, no, I, I probably had girlfriends starting like kindergarten, first grade. When I broke, I broke up with my first grade girlfriend, I think I've told this story before. I, I gave her a note. That said that we were we were calling it a day, and she yelled across the lunchroom, "You phony!" <laughs> <laughs> she put the yeah. phony in it. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah. 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 Do you, do you have Caitlin Campbell? Oh, no, no. Okay, no. hypothetically, if you did, how would that change, or how would your 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 concepts around education? What would you? How would you educate your children? I mean, I I think I would ramp it up, right? Word. Because I think about so I, I live right up the street from a uh, <laughs> from a school, <laughs> right? The phony that is that is a yeah. classic. <laughs> I live right up the street from a school called Wadsworth. Mm-hmm. So Wadsworth is right here on um, 67th. So I would really deeply interrogate and support that just as this support, you know, again, that radical imaginary mm-hmm. of a public commons, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's another space where folks are really kind of talking about self-determination that's not too far away, a place called Freedom Home Academy. Mm-hmm. And it was a group of started by a group of educators mm-hmm. who were just like, look, we know what's happening in these schools. Here's a space for us. So it would have to be some place that is reflecting my child's capacity to self-determine, ask questions, and be supporting in them asking questions, mm-hmm. right? In terms of like really thinking about that. So I I don't think I would retreat as much as I would go into it yeah. even more, right? right. If, that's, if that's possible in terms of my own thinking. Yeah, because there's nothing that points out liberal hypocrisy more than where liberals send their kids Man, to school. trust. <laughs> trust and believe all the like, time. Like, you see those, uh, you know, I'm from New York and you watch these these hearings when they're talking about redoing the specialized, which is like the special enrollment mm-hmm. school, and there are these white parents in there, you know, saying the first half of their statement is all the right things, right. and they hit it with the however, yeah. and it's like... Oof, we're not <laughs> gonna change Man. things. Like, I mean, like this, it's this, it's this thing, right? There's a data point around this in Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. So CPS, Chicago Public Schools, is eight percent white, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But selective enrollment schools are forty eight percent white, mm. right? So when you think about how this operates, right? So literally half of the white kids enrolled in CPS are in some type of selective enrollment situation, yeah. mm-hmm. right? So when you think about that in real time, now that begs the question, who's excluded? That's also just wild that they're only 8% white. Yeah. Right. A school. third of the city is white. Exactly. Was, yeah. that, was, that was a moment where I started understanding uh, segregation before I had any, uh, any of this. I was just like, yo, where do white kids go to school? <laughs> and I literally couldn't think of the answer. Like, I couldn't name one high school Man. outside of like, you know, Whitney what? Young, Jones, Peyton. There is one neighborhood school left that has a majority white population in terms of high schools, mm-hmm. and that's Taft. Mm-hmm. It's the only one ever. So Taft is in Jefferson Park. Yeah. So if you go to O'Hare and you turn yeah. off to 90, <laughs> okay, I mean, like, it's, it's the north, it is the northwest <laughs> yeah. corner of the city, right? Yeah. It's the only, it's the only school currently. And that's, that's a neighborhood in, that has been as restrictive on housing as any region as anywhere in the city. Especially Jefferson Park. Yeah, yeah. 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 Man, I, I know we, we got to wrap. I'm just... I feel like also we just got to separate a- academia from education. Yeah, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Like the, the, the same way we talked about schooling and education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, without yeah, question. Like the, the, the way yeah. that we think of the the courses and the, the, the um, what's it called? The, the subjects. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't have nothing deeper to say about it. I just know that. Yeah, yeah if you were but, to, let, let's, we talked a little bit about how to build a more equitable grade school. Right. What's one thing you would do to reimagine or reshape 
your department or your university that you think would make a big difference yeah. in terms of equity and creativity? Well, actually, I think I really lucked up because I got two folks who are really trying to push that, hmm. right? So Beth Ritchie, one of the OGs Shout in this, out. is a prison abolitionist, right? Mm-hmm. Unavowedly, right? And she's the head of a department of criminology, law, and justice. Oh, <laughs> and, right? and her book is uh, Arrested Justice, right? Arrested Justice. And, and, and the Ergo reading list is going to be popping after yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. Check out our website at ergoradio.com. We have a whole reading list of the books shouted out on the show. She also uh, wrote a book called Compelled to Crime, which mm-hmm. talks about the war on drugs and how mm-hmm. it relates to black women. Mm-hmm. So the department now is shifting where there's more abolitionists coming on, mm-hmm. but it's literally, it's the abolitionists and the cops, right? In, 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 this, in this kind of real space. Makes right? the so holiday party act. Man, you, you know what I'm saying, right? When so, you say the cops, what does that really mean? So right? literally, people who are aspiring to work in some type of law enforcement mm-hmm. or who are currently employed in uh, CPD. Okay, right, right, yeah, in so, this department. It's the okay. criminology department. Right. Yeah, okay. so, so this thing oh, around, so but, but they flipped it, and because it used to just be called criminology. Uh-huh. They flipped it to criminology, law, and justice. Uh-huh. So really kind of pull uh-huh. up, tease out those uh-huh. things. And then in, being in black studies, I think the thing is, and so now, what does it mean to engage in abolitionist perspectives, right? So what are the courses offered, right? So now, are you talking about school prison nexus? Are you talking about the criminalization of immigration? Are you talking about the ways in which you talk about carcerality, carceral spaces, and uh, the carcerality of communities, right? So now, when you start to think, or spatial relationships. Yeah. So I think those things, and then with black studies, really kind of returning to the intent of black studies, which was to be a reflection of community space, mm-hmm. right? So to begin to think about black studies, and so what does it mean to return to that original premise around community space and being reflective of those issues and concerns? And then not separating queer identities from these spaces, right? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times it's kind of broken off into gender and women's studies, but really talking about, and I have had the, a pleasure of being a colleague of a brother by the name of Rod Ferguson. Oh, yeah. And who always... He's been on the Hood Wazi with you. Yeah, 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 for yeah. sure. And he he says this thing. He says, well, what, do we, what does it mean to understand that black life has always been queered, right? It's always been made strange. It's right. always been separated. Mm-hmm. It's always been positioned as surplus, right? Mm-hmm. So now, what is that reclaiming? And I think, you know, folks can learn so much from that. So mm-hmm. in terms of kind of reshaping... Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, reshaping what we do. So basically, just take the classes with these people. Is what you're <laughs> right, right, right. Well, now just let's just look up the homies yeah, and then yeah, yeah. you know definitely draw down with them. But again, but I think that's the work in the future in terms of making those spaces and then as time moves forward, adjusting them. You know, as mm-hmm. need be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like you UIC is one of the few places, at least here, but even in all of our, we've gone to a bunch of campuses and done talks, and it seems like there's a like a a mutability or flexibility in the in that kind of thing of like you can rename a department, you can mm. change these things, you can right. that doesn't exist in a lot of other places. So it seems like there's a an energy to that. Yeah, I mean it's it's still especially at the state level. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's still contested, right? Right, because, of course, yeah, of course. Because yeah, you know, for 18 years I was in a college of education, right? So, you know, and <laughs> yeah. then they kept telling me, I don't know, I don't know. So I was like, okay, this has come to the point where I have to believe yeah, yeah, you. Yeah, right? yeah. So You should probably go somewhere else with God. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. It was probably like, it's probably, probably not the best look for you, homie. But, it's like the second round of American Idol. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, like, ah, yeah. Right, but that, that thing around. But again, 
having that fugitive space of folks saying, no, this is a space for you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The people, but the homies who, who rode and stood up for me and said, no, this is a space for you and, and we'll make space for you, yeah, right? In terms of, and that was a huge thing. Again, never expected, but only knowing that that comes by the will of people, right? So right. if not for Beth Ritchie, Barbara Ransby, right. Rod Ferguson, and Jane Rhodes. There is no space. There is no space. I would not be at UIC, right? Yeah. right? In fact, I had Illuminati dreams of being in, uh, Long Beach with Snoop in a 72 Nova, right? <laughs> on them things, right? So, you know. Which yeah. honestly sounds more fun in certain ways. Yeah. It's objectively better. <laughs> it's a, it's <laughs> a different podcast, but it right. sounds like a blast. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, on that note, yeah. uh, you got to go teach. So, we're we not going to take up too much. More nah, it's, all, it's, all, it's all good, man. Nah, Thank y'all so much. Thank Is you. there any, any thread, any idea that we've been talking about that you feel like we didn't quite get across or something that you want to clarify or, or just something you want to make sure is on? On the mic, on the record. Yeah, I think for for the record, in terms of us really thinking about that difference between education and school, really thinking about dispossession in terms of what has been taken from people, mm-hmm. and the commitment to not just get those things back, but to be responsible to an accurate telling of these stories and the communication of these stories, and then really to engage participatory democracy as something that is needed, necessary, and to be challenged to think about that structurally. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I'm going I'm to continue that. I, I want to pull out this closeout because we have a tradition that is on hiatus. And it's a game called Beef with the R&B Singer. Huh? <laughs> but, but you know, at this time, we're, we're taking a break <laughs> on that. But we still got beef with the R&B game and the R&B singers. But I want to do like closeouts. Kind yeah. of similar mm. So um, you can answer either or both of these questions. Okay. Uh, all three of us. Mm. Uh, what's something you learned? What's something you felt as Damn. we sat together? Yeah, I think... What I've learned is that there um, are more folks who are really interested in engaging these radical imaginaries in real time, mm-hmm. right? I think I think they're really by you all's commentary. I really understand that there are folks who take this seriously and think about this outside of academic spaces, but in real time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in feeling feeling the good energy, man. Because, like you said, I mean, you know, you. In many of these spaces, man, you're in a fight, right? Yeah. You, you, and, you, and it's, you and it's just, I mean, it's a fight in a phone booth, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's explicit, it's rough, you know, it's tearing at you in all these different spaces. But to feel that good energy around folks who are coming to do work in a particular mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about you, Dan? Um, I, I just, I got to see, like, literally in my, like, like, saw images of this concept of, like, liberatory intercommunalism mm-hmm. right um that is the th- the I, i'm just picturing the idea of a building that we would right now call a school mm-hmm. that is open you know it till 9 to 10 mm-hmm. p.m mm-hmm. that is a place of economic resource a place where food is grown uh where conflict is resolved where where uh power is really built mm-hmm. and so I, I i in doing that I also had to see the neighborhood around it mm-hmm. uh and so i just feel encouraged to be behind people right because so i think so often uh folks who do activism or communal work uh especially outside of institutional spaces feel alone or feel like we have to be in front uh and so to 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 know that there is that you are behind a group that i am behind that is so powerful and experienced in just at least the thought of this and then disseminating that thought so i, I feel encouraged what about you kiss 
I really am. I had never really heard someone articulate the way you you framed the abolition of the conditions the way that you did mm-hmm. so clearly, mm-hmm. and that's something that's very useful, I think, for people, including myself, who, you know, are trying to pick apart what does abolition mean, and that's something that's very tangible and understandable, and is not about like what do we do, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. like what are we trying to do, yeah. what's the objective. Yeah. So that's really useful. And what I feel is that I have to pee terribly. So let's, let's <laughs> How can people find you in the ways you want to be found? Definitely. So uh, best way to get at me, if you look at uic.edu uh, in their phone book, I am the only <laughs> stovall in the joint, right? So my another email that's actually routed to that one is M like Mary, F like Frank, S like Steve, 8837 Damn. at gmail.com now motherfuckers what, at 8837 right 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 it's literally it's literally motherfucker shit right and uh, it is the best way to so the best way for me to remember my email is to curse and remember the address that I grew up in that's right so, that's how I feel when I get emails right exactly right so that was that's the best way so shit right 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 and just I have so, 8,837 emails <laughs> right 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 you know or, or, or the, the, the kind of dra- the drag way like motherfucker shit damn yeah. but that um so yeah those those are the two best ways One. to get at me this was such a deep dive yeah, and I appreciate you. your your energy and your and your knowledge thank you so much for coming through and chopping man with thank us. y'all so much for having me thank truly you. appreciate thank it thank you much love to the people peace mm. Damon, you recognize those drums? I think I do. You know what song they're from? Is this a Bell Biv DeVoe moment? It's a Bell Biv DeVoe moment. That is from the song Poison. <laughs> I really thought that song was America's favorite poison. No, no, no. Turns out it's beer. <laughs> Speaking of beer, this episode is brought to you by Lagunitas Brewing Company, Chicago Tap Room and Beer Sanctuary. Come for fresh beer, live music, and killer food Wednesdays through Sundays. Killer food. <laughs> 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. Bring your group and hop on a brewery tour seven days a week or swing by the Lagunitas Tap Room in Pilsen. Does sanctuary like imply meditation and offerings to the Lord? <laughs> Not my lord. <laughs> you can also find some Lagunitas near you at lagunitas.com. Life is uncertain. Don't sip.